0: Hello DanceWell listeners this is Ellie Kushner and this is Eating Disorder Awareness Week which means I'm compelled to give you an episode related to that topic. Last year DanceWell produced a tour de force five episodes about eating disorders and I have to say conducting those interviews really changed how I approach this topic with dancers. It's a sensitive complicated issue and in the past I didn't always feel that I had the tools to meet the challenge. In fact Despite the prevalence of eating disorders in dance, I think that a lot of you might share my feelings because many of us don't receive any training on how to safely navigate this important topic. I'm still learning a lot, but like I said, last year's episodes really helped me feel more empowered to talk about eating disorders with dancers, and I hope that many of you will feel empowered by this episode in which Monica Seigel talks about how language can be detrimental or supportive when it comes to body image and eating habits. Monica and I both hope that you'll listen to this conversation with an open mind and an open heart, being honest with yourself about the language that you use, but also compassionate towards yourself. Recognize that many of us have been immersed in a culture that isn't always very healthy, and we simply haven't always had the information that we need to use language with, which fosters healthy mindsets. As you'll hear Monica say, we can't do better until we know better. Monica Segel is a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified dietitian nutritionist, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian, and a former professional dancer. She is the founder and owner of MS Nutrition PC, a New York City-based nutrition counseling and consulting practice specializing in eating disorders, disordered eating, and nutrition for dancers and performing artists. Monica provides nutrition counseling to dancers and performing artists in her private practice in Manhattan, virtually to clients nationally and internationally, and as a nutritionist at the Juilliard School, where she is completing her seventh year. Monica is passionate about teaching dancers how to nourish their mind and body to improve performance, prevent injury, and develop a healthy relationship with food. To better address the health needs of dancers, she developed the Head to Point Workshop, a series which includes nutrition and self-care workshops for dancers as well as specialized trainings for dance educators, staff, parents, and healthcare care professionals on eating disorder awareness and prevention. She presents these workshops nationally to dance studios, colleges, and companies, often in collaboration with psychotherapists to more fully address mental health topics that are important to dancers. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, the life coach, dance and performance, psychological strength, strength, and today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from DanceWell dance well Podcast. DanceWell Podcast. Dance well Podcast. Hi, Monica. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on, Ellie.
0: Um, So we're going to be talking about the ways in which language may contribute to disordered eating or disordered eating habits um, and the ways in which language can help support developing a positive body image. Um, So before we get into all of that, would you mind just sort of laying, giving us the lay of the land and explaining why this is such an important issue with dancers.
1: Sure. Um, You know, I, again, I'm so thankful to be here, especially um, because I think this is going to go out for National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And I'm really passionate about preventing eating disorders and disordered eating in dancers. And when the issues do occur in helping them to get the best care possible. Um, and to me, it actually goes beyond that. It's about helping dancers learn how to nourish a healthy relationship with food in their body, not only as a, a critical part of eating disorder prevention, but also, you know, we want them to be not just healthy dancers, but healthy humans who have energy to accomplish everything that's important to them, whether it's dance or school or work, um, that uh, helps support connection, enables them to be fully present in their lives, um, support sleep and mood. Um, so it's really a about much more than being a healthy dancer. Um, And I don't think it's a surprise to anybody who's involved in the dance world that dancers really are at high risk for eating disorders and disordered eating. They really um, remain way too common in the dance world. And I think that we can do better and we need to do better. And I think that anybody who's involved in the training and care of a dancer, whether it's parents or teachers, healthcare professionals and dancers themselves can play an important role that not only protects against the development of eating disorders and disordered eating, um, but also leads to early intervention and appropriate treatment when they do occur.
0: So we'll be getting more into that information in terms of um, what people can do to support the, the positive body image. Um, Are there any terms that you want to define before we start or language, since this is all about language, um, any language that we should be using as we talk about this um, issue?
1: Yeah, so just to make people aware of some of the the terminology involved with eating disorders, Um, first I should start by saying that eating disorders are complex conditions. They're caused by multiple factors, including biological factors, psychological factors, social and environmental factors. And some of these things we can't change, like genetics, and some of them we can. And so when I discuss language today, I'm really going to be focusing on the way in which language plays a role in some of the modifiable risk factors. Um, when we're talking about eating disorders, um, we're mainly talking about diagnoses like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and then um, what was formerly known as EDNOS, or eating disorder not otherwise specified, has since the DSM-5 is now known, it's kind of been um, categorized as two different things Um Uh, other specified feeding and eating disorder and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. And we won't go into the specifics of that, but I think the important thing to know is that those diagnoses, much like EDNOS, doesn't mean that it's any less severe than one of the other eating disorder diagnoses. And disordered eating is... um, Basically, harmful beliefs or behaviors around food or body or weight that don't meet the specific criteria for one of the other eating disorder um, diagnoses, we can think about disordered eating as occurring on a spectrum of severity. So very often, somebody with disordered eating will be exhibiting a lot of the same behaviors as someone with an eating disorder. So they may be fasting or binging or purging or engaging in compulsive exercise. It might just be at a lower frequency, for example. I think the important thing to remember here is that we don't wanna take disordered eating any less seriously than an eating disorder. Um, Not only can disordered eating have significant negative effects on the physical and mental health of a dancer, but can also be a precursor to a full eating disorder. And the last thing that we want is for dancers delaying getting help. You know, feeling like it's not that bad if they don't have one of the eating disorder diagnoses, um, because the earlier the treatment, the better chance of full recovery. And you know, for the sake of today, the recommendations I'm going to be talking about really will apply to both eating disorders and disordered eating.
0: Yeah, it seems a lot of dancers sort of toe that line between um, disordered eating behaviors and full-blown eating disorders. So. I think it's important that you mentioned that it's valuable to get help, even if you don't have a full um, eating disorder.
1: Definitely. And I think also that making that distinction between an eating disorder and disordered eating, it's not always so clear cut, you know, there is some gray area. And so, you know, again, I do think it's important that for anyone who's struggling in any way with food, weight, um, body issues that they seek treatment.
0: We're talking about language, uh, that, is something that we talk about so much when we're talking about like motor skills or um, cueing in the classroom. Um, And I haven't heard it come up as often on this topic. So can you explain what is the connection here between language and eating disorders? Why is this um, such an important thing to consider?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're considering language, we're thinking about not only the way that we are spoken to, but how we speak to ourselves. And that language can have a profound effect on our thoughts, our feelings, and behaviors. And so if we think of this in the context of some of those risk factors for eating disorders that are modifiable, um, for example, Two of the major risk factors for eating disorders are body image dissatisfaction and dieting. And so if you think about the way that we speak about food and weight in bodies and the way that we hear these things spoken about, that's going to have an impact on our own food choices and how we feel about our bodies and how we feel about our food choices. So, for example, what a dancer might be hearing in their environment, in the dance studio, at home, at school, or in the media, is going to be very likely to influence their relationship with food and their body image. Another place we can think about the importance of language in relation to a modifiable risk factor is um, with certain personality traits like perfectionism and rigid thinking. So the way dancers are spoken to and how they speak to themselves might further this perfectionistic uh, personality type, or it might serve to counter the rigid thinking and perfectionistic uh, language that they might be speaking to themselves with. Um, And in recovery as well, when we're working on treatment from an eating disorder, the kind of language we use can either encourage or deter a dancer from getting help and can um, either promote or compromise recovery. So there there are multiple ways in which language is important related to eating disorders and disordered eating.
0: Okay, so maybe using that um, rigid thinking or perfectionistic tendencies as an example or not. Um, <laughs> can you now describe some of the things that people say in the studio, whether it is that self talk that you referred to, or something a teacher might say, or a parent might say, um, or even things that medical professionals might say in the exam or treatment room, um, all of which might be problematic?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I'm a dietitian, so I will start kind of in talking about the food and dieting aspect. I think the other component that's really important to discuss is language around weight and bodies. Um, but starting with the food piece, um, I think that you know, This idea of healthy eating in our culture has gotten very warped, um, and the way that we speak about food has become such a source of, or our relationship with food has become such a source of anxiety and stress. And we forget that this anxiety and stress caused by our relationship with food is probably much more unhealthy than any other, I'm sorry, than any one food choice could be. Um, you know, and I think because we live in such a diet obsessed culture, dieting is so normalized that we often don't recognize it as a problematic behavior, but it really is. Um, first of all, dieting is one of the most common and preventable precursors to developing an eating disorder or disordered eating. I actually believe that dieting is a form of disordered eating. It's just not a healthy and sustainable, uh, relationship with food, um, And dieting can lead to negative energy balance and energy deficiency, which is also in and of itself a risk factor for an eating disorder and then, of course, carries its own set of harmful effects on both physical and mental health. And although we're focusing on disordered eating and eating disorders today, I think just briefly to touch on underfueling and energy deficiency um, or REDS, which is also very common among dancers because Dieting obviously can contribute to this as well, and REDs can occur independent of an eating disorder or disordered eating. So Basically, I think that any promotion of dieting is problematic, and we need to do a much better job of making dancers aware of the harms of dieting and do our best to prevent them from going down that road. Um, Unfortunately, I have dancers come to me all the time who've had a diet recommended to them by a teacher or a peer or a family member, or even worse, by a doctor or a dietitian. And, you know, even if sometimes a certain type of modified diet might be medically necessary, we need to do this very cautiously and with um, proper guidance, especially because of the way in which perfectionism and rigid thinking um, can quickly escalate those behaviors into something problematic. Um, I've actually had multiple clients who've been... um, recommended to do the low FODMAP diet, which is um, an intervention that's sometimes used for IBS, but they weren't given appropriate support and guidance. You know, you can't just give somebody a handout and be like, good luck, see you in three months. Um, And it quickly escalated into um, full eating disorders in a few cases. And so that's the kind of thing that we want to be aware of. Um, I think also in regards to food and nutrition, we want to be really cautious about giving out general nutrition information without considering the impacts. So for example, you know, that sort of diet recommendation you hear often like, eat your vegetables first, you know, sounds benign, but it's actually not a benign statement because you don't know what someone is going to do with that information. Um, definitely talking about your own dieting practices, telling someone a low carb diet really helped you lose weight. Um, If you are going to give out nutrition information, are you trained to do it? And do you have appropriate time to discuss that with the dancer and give them the guidance they need? Um, You know, one thing that I love is I'm seeing more and more Uh, schools and companies bringing in people to speak on nutrition for dancers, but I think it's really important that the people that are brought in have not only an appropriate nutrition credential, but also have training, um, or at least an understanding of eating disorders and disordered eating so that the information is presented in a way that supports nourishing a healthy relationship with food rather than supporting disordered eating. Um, when I spoke at I Adams on this topic, I brought up an example of a dancer I was working with who went to a summer intensive where the, you know, quote unquote nutritionist recommended that all of the dancers follow a gluten-free diet and, you know, shouldn't consume lactose. And that's totally not, you know, supported in the research at all. That is a very harmful recommendation to be giving to a group. And so these are the kinds of things, you know, we're, we're sort of up against. Um, I think also, We very much tend to uh, kind of put foods in the good and bad food category or healthy, unhealthy. And this dichotomous way of approaching nutrition and food, I think, is not only harmful, but it's inaccurate. And it's problematic for a lot of different reasons, Um, one of which is that it doesn't take into account how culture and access affect food choices. Um, You know, not everybody needs to be eating quinoa and avocados in order to be healthy. And, and finally, I'll just say around, you know, the, the food and dining piece that I think we also, again, because of the kind of rigid thinking and perfectionism that's common among dancers, we need to be really careful about using numbers. So are we talking about calories and grams of protein and counting macros and, you know, all of this, uh, you know, kind of very number-focused nutrition information, I, I think is more harmful than helpful.
0: Yeah, that kind of goes back. I think you made such a great statement when you said that being stressed about food and your food choices is probably more unhealthy than any single unhealthy food that you're going to eat.
1: Hundred percent. You know, we we think big picture. I think again, that's another issue with the way nutrition information is often presented. Is just so much pressure is put on one food choice. You know, no one food, not even a week of food choices, is not going to you know make you sick or cure you. You know, we're really kind of looking at at big picture.
0: Um, I think I've even heard that. Yeah, to your point about the the nutritionist sort of giving out bad information, um, even well-intending, accurate lectures on nutrition can set off eating disorders in vulnerable populations, right? I'm so happy that you mentioned that, Ellie, because I, I wanted to bring it up earlier. I think it's important to
1: to just kind of assume that when we're evaluating our, our language and what the potentially inadvertent harmful effects might be, is that these recommendations are all given with the assumption that we all want what's best for dancers. You know, I think that we sometimes hear these horror stories about things that are happening in the dance world. But by and large, I think most people that are working with dancers really do care about dancers and want the best for them. Um, And it's important to acknowledge that the, the process can be difficult and sometimes even painful to sort of think about, oh, wow, what I was saying and doing might have been causing some harm. And that's okay. And it's a normal part of the process. I know I can share in my own um, journey as a clinician, looking back on some of the things I did earlier in my career, which were of course, largely influenced by the fact that dietetics training is very weight centric and diet focused, much like the medical profession. Um, It's like, okay, you can't do better until you know better. And so this is really, you know, I, I would encourage listeners who might be experiencing some discomfort in evaluating the impact of um, their language to just listen with an open mind and heart to be compassionate with themselves. And it's really about building awareness so that we can do better for dancers because they really need us to. Um, and so that just kind of goes back to your point of, I don't believe that in most cases things are done with malintent, but that doesn't make them okay.
0: Right. Yeah. You also mentioned, um, so you've, We've talked about the sort of fixation on dieting. I mean, I've totally heard teachers talk about their diets or their fasts that they're doing with students. (laughs) Um, So that one's pretty clear. And then the other thing that you mentioned was weight fixation as something that can be problematic in the studio.
1: Yeah, so we definitely want to be considering um, our language and how we're speaking about weight and bodies. Um, I think a really harmful thing that happens quite often is praising weight loss. Um, I have so many clients who are doing very harmful things in order to lose weight, and then they get positive reinforcement of, oh, wow, you look so great. And you know. so you can imagine the kind of message that sends to somebody um, who may be struggling with disordered eating or eating disorder behaviors. Um, I think that we really should not be weighing down Dancers are imposing weight or body fat requirements, especially in the dance company school setting. Um, If dancers are being weighed in a medical setting or some other setting where it's needed, you know, I think we need to consider what are we doing with this information? Um, Has the person been trained appropriately to evaluate weight and then communicate this information to the dancers or the rest of the team? Um, Has the dancer consented to it? Do they know what you're doing with the information? Um, So we just really need to be cautious with our language around um, weight. And if we are weighing dancers, do we have time to process the dancer's feelings around it? Um, I also think Encouraging weight loss is very problematic. Um, and actually, the research shows that not only does encouraging weight loss lead to weight gain, um, but it's also linked to a lot of other adverse health consequences. So, you know, growing dancers should never be encouraged to lose weight, but I think it's also really harmful for all dancers. Um, And if there are weight concerns in either direction, I think best practice is really to refer to a dietitian who's an eating disorder specialist um, and has experience in working with dancers. And then, you know, in regards to corrections and feedback in the studio, uh, we want to be considering our corrections given in a way that's demeaning or that makes dancers feel bad about their bodies. Um, I mean, I can't even tell you the number of horrible things I've heard <laughs> in my own training. Um, and that was a long time ago, but I still hear very similar things from dancers now. And it's like, oh, wow, this stuff is still happening. You know, a lot's changed in the dance world and a lot has stayed the same, um, like I recently had. Had a dancer who shared with me that one of the corrections she was given was, You know, your beats would be better if your thighs were smaller. So that's a perfect example of the kind of comment we don't want to be making.
0: It just doesn't make it, just doesn't even make sense. I mean, what exactly. about all the men with like incredible muscles who have phenomenal beats? <laughs> just, exactly, like, right?
1: It doesn't make sense and it's harmful. Um, you know, and we also want to be thinking about, you know, language around weight and bodies that's considered stigmatizing. So, certain terms, you know, like obese, overweight, and fat, they have a lot of meaning outside of, you know, whatever the medical definition might be. For example, in the case of quote unquote obese or quote unquote overweight, um, you know, and I'm not going to go into that in a lot of detail today, but I think it's important to know that these terms are considered stigmatizing and weight stigma is linked to poor health outcomes. Um, And so we need to kind of think about other ways that, um, or other terminology that we can be using.
0: Um, Before we get into better choices for language, um, I just want to go back to what you talked about in terms of, you know, people may be hearing this and feeling like shame or regret about things that they've said. Um, And I know like lately, I've been taking a much more open approach to talking about disordered eating habits with students. I don't, um, I used to be worried about it, but now I realize it's important to de-stigmatize it and to say like, you know, perhaps you've experimented with these or ch- perhaps this is a challenge you're familiar with or, you know, you feel like you're towing the line or whatever, um, but it, But I still worry, you know, because it's such a sensitive and personal matter. And um, I hear from teachers lately Uh, that they're like scared or shackled or paralyzed in their teaching because there's this current culture of like triggers and sensitivity awareness and things like that Um, and like you said I think a lot of teachers have really good intentions so I think a lot of times you know they really worry about offending or hurting a student and that potentially even leading to like the worst case scenario I mean like Suicide or something, you know. Like, there's a lot of real and serious stress that people feel about sensitive issues. Um, so, when we were in Ad I Adams, I think Sylvie Fortin stood up in response to your lecture, and she said how she um, embraces these uh, word challenges as as fascinating challenges, and I thought that was really wise. Um, Yes. And I and then you also just mentioned sort of self-compassion and being gentle with yourself, you know, as you think about the things that you may have said that are problematic. And we'll talk more about self-compassion. Um, but I was wondering if you have any anything else um, in terms of how to, like, empower teachers and professionals working with dancers um, rather than making them feel like they're, like, being policed or, or that they have to really worry about everything they say so much so that they feel paralyzed do you have anything you could say about that
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's important for teachers to keep in mind that obviously what they say and do is important in creating a positive and protective culture, but also no one thing that they say or do is going to give a dancer an eating disorder or make it significantly worse or better. You know, remember we were talking about the um, causes of eating disorders being multifactorial, so it's not as if one comment is going to be a a make or break situation. you know, of course, we don't want to minimize the impact of words, but we don't want teachers to feel so much pressure that it becomes paralyzing. Um, we also want to keep in mind, you know when you do a lot of this work, you sort of start to learn the eating disorder filter. And so it's like you know you might say something and it passes through this eating disorder filter, and the dancer hears it a totally different way. Um, and so knowing that that eating disorder filter can turn any comment, Um, into fuel for the eating disorder, it's obviously impossible to avoid all potentially problematic language in that context. Um, So let's say, for example, you know, the teachers are like, change lines. Um, I want This group in the back and a dancer in that group might say, oh, she wants me in the back because I'm fat if it goes through the eating disorder filter and it gets translated into that. You know, there's nothing wrong with what the teacher said, but that work then ideally is happening with the treatment team to help a dancer recognize, you know, what cognitive distortions might be at play, um, how that eating disorder filter is impacting them and helping the dancer to um, work to challenge that. You know, and I think to help empower teachers, you know, in the beginning, when you're starting to um, evaluate your language and how you might want to change it, you're probably going to have to think more about what you say before you say it, which is not necessarily a bad thing, Um, but it can feel unnatural. And I think it just gets easier over time. It's like building any new habit or finding a new way to express ideas that it gets better with practice. Um, You're probably going to make mistakes along the way and that's okay. I think it can actually be healing to acknowledge that. Um, If you say something that afterwards you're like, Oh, I wonder if that was um, received in a, a way that's problematic. You know, checking with a dancer about how they heard it, or apologizing um, for saying it in that way, and reframing it can actually be a, a healing experience. Um, I think it's important to be again compassionate and patient with yourself. And teachers are, you know, they're so great at having creativity um, in expressing ideas. Whether it's um, trying to give imagery to help achieve a certain quality of movement, or find a way to express um, the kind of technique that they're looking for, and so you already. Have have the skills. It's just about using something you've been honing probably for years or decades in a different way. And that kind of goes back to the um, comment that you mentioned of like, you know, almost seeing it as a a lovely challenge.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. An artistic puzzle to solve, if you will. Yeah. (laughs) That's really helpful. Thank you. So now let's get into the positive stuff. Um, What can teachers and practitioners and even fellow dancers or dancers themselves do to encourage a healthy eating culture and promote positive body image?
1: So the good news is that I actually think there's a lot that we can be doing. Um, you know, as far as teachers, dance educators and staff are concerned, I think providing nutrition and self-care education that focuses on a non-diet approach and includes a, a body image component to dancers is super helpful. Um, you know, my dream is that all teachers and support staff and medical profession, professionals get training on eating disorder awareness and prevention. I think that's really important, too, to know what the warning signs are and to know what to say and what not to say. Um, I think uh, encouraging dancers to um, take fuel and hydration breaks uh, is really helpful in promoting a healthy eating culture. Um, also being a healthy role model yourself with food and body. You kind of mentioned this earlier, Ellie, but you know, having a no-tolerance policy for diet talk and fat talk in the studio, I think is super important. Um, no body shaming or teasing. You know, if you hear it, shut it down so the dancers sort of know. You know, this is a safe zone when it comes to that kind of discussion. Um, We want to be promoting the idea that all bodies are good bodies. And I think something that's really helpful in that respect is just having greater body diversity in the studio as well. Um, You know, because dancers um, tend to tend towards perfectionism and a lot of dance is getting Uh, critiques and corrections, um, it can feel like everything you're doing is wrong and never good enough. So I think when appropriate, also giving dancers positive reinforcement is really important. As far as practitioners go, I think that we want to be promoting an all-foods-fit approach, um, a non-diet approach. Uh, We want to be taking into account each dancer's unique needs um, and really teaching dancers how to tune into their own body's wisdom. I mean, I I love doing this, you know, whether it's um, around hunger or fullness or really understanding what the body is telling us so we can use those messages rather than some external factor to determine when to eat and what to eat and how much to eat. Um, I mentioned it earlier, but I think we really need to be careful about the language we're using when we discuss weight. I think if you're somebody that works with dancers and you're not trained in eating disorders um, to pursue some training, some continuing education, do some reading. So you at least have a a basic knowledge. Um, And I think you want to help dancers cultivate self-compassion and also body image flexibility. Uh, Body image flexibility has been found to be a protective factor um, against eating disorders and disordered eating. And, and basically what that is, is, you know, we're all going to have uncomfortable body days. And so it's helping dancers know that even when I don't feel good in my body, I can still choose to nourish my body in a way that's in line with my values. So I value taking care of my body as an instrument. So I'm not going to skip meals just because I don't feel comfortable in my body today. And then for dancers, um, when I speak to dancers, I think they're so empowered by the fact that knowing, hey, they can do something, too. You know, they can feel that the environment can be toxic. And so dancers also shouldn't be engaging in diet talk and fat talk. Um, you know, don't when when you do engage in diet talk and fat talk, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people listening to it. Um, so not only making the commitment to not do it yourself, but to shut it down with your peers when you do hear it. I think it can be good for dancers to also cultivate an identity outside of being a dancer um, and a sense of self-worth that um, comes from places other than their dance ability and their bodies. Um, And a social media cleanse, I think, is also super (laughs) important in this current culture. Um, You know, thinking about what you're exposing yourself to, are are those messages and is that language helpful or is it harmful?
0: Interesting. I, um, yeah. Lately, I'm thinking a lot about how we think of eating disorder as manifesting in dance, you know, because it's an aesthetic art form and um, we're in front of mirrors and we wear tight-fitting clothing and there's lots of things that put us at risk. But I also think um, some of those later things you mentioned, like cultivating an identity outside of dance, are a big part of it. I think, um, you know, not not having good coping skills for stress or negative feelings or not understanding that um, you can have one of those uncomfortable body days and not feel good about how your body looks but still know that you're a good person. (laughs) I think that's hard for dancers, honestly.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's so important. It's such an important part of, you know, overall health. Um, You know, when a dancer gets injured and their whole identity is tied up in in being a dancer, you know, if they don't have any coping skills and all they know is the dance world, it's going to have a much more profound effect than if they've been able to cultivate some of those coping skills and if they have other interests and a life
0: outside of dance as well. And it sounds like a lot of what we're talking about also has to do with kind of um, teachers and practitioners like facing their own demons, you know, it's kind of um, you bring your baggage with you everywhere you go. So you kind of have to sort some of that out. Um, if you don't want to subject your students to it.
1: Totally. I mean, that that goes back to what I was saying about being a healthy role model yourself with food and body. And again, if somebody has, you know, been in the dance world for most of their lives they may not even realize how some of the things that they think and feel about their bodies and food can be problematic and harmful it can just feel like oh this is just the way
0: it is totally um we've talked a lot about sort of um prevention let's talk about um when we're engaging with people who have been diagnosed with an eating disorder and um depending on where they are in their treatment what language do we need to be aware of when we're working um, with dancers who we know have had an eating disorder? What should we be cautious of and what should we be, um, positive about?
1: Okay. Um, so let me start with the, the, what we should be cautious of, um, and some mistakes that I, I often see people, um, make, I think this is going to differ to some degree depending on your relationship with the dancer. So starting with if you're a friend or family member or a loved one, um, you know, I think it's important to strike a balance between not ignoring the issue and never asking about it and not only focusing on the eating disorder, you know, remembering that the dancer is a person outside of the eating disorder um, and reminding them of that can be a really useful and helpful part of recovery. I think we also want loved ones and family members to remember to take into account the special needs of recovery. So um, let's say for example, you know, your family is going on vacation, making sure that you have, you know, regular planned balanced meals that are appropriate for what the dancer needs, Um, you know, if everyone else is kind of fine going along without a plan and just sort of deciding last minute or eating a really late lunch, you know, that might not be appropriate for a dancer who's in recovery. And so you want to be taking their recovery needs into account. I think one of the best things you can do is really ask a dancer what the best way is to support them, um, especially around finding that balance of how much to talk about it versus not talk about it. When it comes to medical professionals, oh, I have so much to say about this. (laughs) You know, I think that, um, a lot of the issues I see are when people are not trained in eating disorders, you know, eating disorders is a specialty area that does require specific training. Um, most doctors, dietitians, this isn't included as a part of our basic education and training. So unless you're seeking out the specialty, continuing education and training, you're just not going to have it. You know, it's much like, um, sending a dancer to a physical therapist who might see a dancer here and there versus somebody who specializes in working with dancers. You know, the care is going to be really different. Um, You know, so one of the issues I see a lot with uh, medical professionals is minimizing findings. Um, You know, it's very common that, uh, especially in restrictive eating disorders, even though a person might be very malnourished, the lab work is going to come back Totally normal, um, you know. So we want to be explaining to dancers what that means and what it doesn't mean in the context of an eating disorder. Um, you know, I think a lot of times professionals who aren't trained are framing that like, "Oh, great, everything's fine," and that's absolutely not what that means. Um, Oftentimes, appropriate workup is also not done or potentially harmful recommendations are made. So I still often see um, oral contraceptive pills given to um, dancers who are not getting their periods as a way to protect bone health, which is, again, not supported in research. um, Or telling someone, oh, it's fine that your heart rate is really low. You're an athlete, Um, you know, not understanding the impact of the eating disorder, Um, I recently had a client um, in my practice who had a diagnosed eating disorder, clinically underweight, went to the doctor, labs came back normal, although they didn't test everything they needed to, which is another issue, like not doing the full workup necessary when you don't know what that that entails. And and the doctor said, you know, you're fine. There's no evidence of malnutrition. It's like, what? (laughs) You know, that kind of... um, that kind of language and, and framing, you know, the eating disorder in that way just can be so harmful. And it really breaks my heart because I think that these are really missed opportunities to get a client appropriate help and can have a lasting impact on a client's recovery. Um, you know, I think we need to be using neutral and non non-judgmental language and facial expressions when we're discussing, um, food and eating and weight. um, Again, I think not offering generic nutrition advice. Uh, You know, I know my own doctor. When you go and get blood work every year, I get this email that says, "Oh, your cholesterol is this number." Uh, Recommendations for health are this many cups of fruits and veggies, and you know, I have dancers who are eating six cups of vegetables at a meal. I don't want them eating any more fruits and veggies. So, you know, again, I think these like seemingly benign general nutrition statements are just not. (laughs) And so, we want to know what the impact is going to be before we're giving out that kind of. information. Um, I think other things for everybody to consider on the the problematic front are not commenting on appearance that, oh, you look great, or you look fine. Um, You know, the eating disorder filter is going to translate that into something totally different, like I'm fat, or I need to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, We don't want to be underestimating how long recovery takes. It it can take years and it's hard and it's non-linear. We want to be encouraging um, dancers to um, engage in ongoing care to promote full recovery and prevent relapse. Um, And, you know, I think anyone who works with dancers should have on hand a list of referrals to eating disorder specialists. Um, And so we definitely want to be making recommendations who
0: have experience in the field. So we've talked about sort of trying to prevent disordered eating or eating disorders. And then we just talked about people who we know have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And then there's this sort of tricky area in between where, um, what if we suspect that someone has an eating disorder? Um, this again can feel like a really risky Area for a teacher. I can say that personally. Um, I have suspected students of eating disorders and really worried about alienating the student and feeling ill equipped to really go forward if they do say that they're struggling with something. Um, so, what do we do and what can we say? What actions should be taken if we just suspect that someone has an eating disorder?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a a really important thing to talk about. And again, it's going to depend, the way you address it is going to depend on what the environment is. You know, are you a friend or family member is it part of a school or studio context? Um, What are the resources available to you? So, you know, I think if you're part of a school studio company, um, I highly recommend that um, school studios companies establish an eating disorder protocol so that there are guidelines in place um, for what to do if you suspect that a dancer has an eating disorder. So ideally there would be a referral system. If someone has a concern, they would know who to bring it to. And there would be um, guidelines in place of how to handle these situations, which is really helpful to have consistency. Um, And um, so it's in these settings, again, it's helpful to have a designated person or people who are gonna speak to the dancer. And ideally that is gonna be somebody who's received training on how to handle these situations because how you intervene and what you say can make the difference in Um, helping a dancer to get treatment versus not. Um, I think some general recommendations are if you're working with a minor, you definitely need to involve the parent or guardian. Um, Conversations need to take place in private and be kept confidential um, other than whatever the guidelines are in place where you might have to then relay the information to health services, for example, um, or someone else within the dance department. Um you want to remember that your role is actually not to diagnose the dancer or provide any therapeutic recommendations. Really the goal is to get them to agree to get evaluation and diagnosis from a healthcare professional who specializes in eating disorders, whether it's a doctor or a therapist or a dietitian, and then you want to give them a referral to a specific person. Um, so, you know what to say you want to express your concerns using i statements um you don't want to confront or you want to try not to confront on specific eating disorder behaviors so you might say for example you know i'm concerned because i've noticed your having a hard time focusing, or I've noticed that your energy is lower than usual. um, And I'm worried you might not be eating enough to support your training. Um, I think it'd be beneficial to get a consultation with a dietitian or a therapist. um, And would you be willing to explore that idea with me? And then give the dancer time to express their feelings. Um, you want to be sensitive and direct and understanding, not judgmental or criticizing. And I think we want to expect denial. It's a huge part of eating disorders. You know, the chances of getting the I'm fine, nothing is wrong is there, there's a high chance of that happening. Um, and a way to respond to that would be to say, you know, I really hope you're right. The only way we know for sure is to get uh, evaluation by medical profession. Professional And again, uh, see if you can give them a referral and that they would agree to that. It might take multiple conversations. Um, and depending on the situation and the level of concern, sometimes it's necessary to withhold participation from dance until they do get a medical evaluation, which can be motivating to the dancer and also sends the message that their health is the most important thing. Um, Again, depending on the severity of the eating disorder, sometimes also a treatment contract might be needed, so that that would set guidelines or expectations of what they would have to do to return to dance or if there's going to be some kind of modified participation, um, and ultimately that needs to be decided by the treatment team. Who's doing the evaluation? Um, I think you want to let a dancer know that you care about them and you're available to talk again. Um, it's really helpful to maintain open lines of communication, um, depending on your relationship with the dancer, to help reduce the isolation that's often a part of having an eating disorder. Um, and I think most of these guidelines would apply to a family member or a loved one as well. It's just obviously if you're a parent of a minor, you're going to have a little more influence in being able to get them to do or insist on doing a medical evaluation.
0: Great. That sounds, um, you make it sound very manageable. Thank you.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that.
0: <laughs> These um, are not easy situations. No, so they're really Again, difficult.
1: I think that that's why having guidelines in place is really helpful, because when you're, you know, in the stress of the situation, it makes it even more challenging. And so kind of knowing what you're supposed to do going into it is helpful for the person intervening, but also helpful for the dancer, because when there's consistency across the board, it also feels fair.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to practice, I mean, these things um, in those types of trainings, you know, it takes practice to say those things and feel comfortable Saying them and um, being neutral and all those things that you mentioned, so role playing and practicing with you know other colleagues, I think is helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think a lot of people in in the dance world have their own issues with eating and food and body, and that can make you a really good ally. Um, I think you just want to be cautious about how much personal information you're sharing around that, because it can you know kick up a lot of comparison, and and that can get tricky. Um, I think often the best approach around that is if you want to share that you've also had those issues is to, you know, say, I also struggled with, you know, XYZ, and I found it really helpful to speak to a nutritionist or a therapist. So you're always kind of pointing them in direction of an expert who can really provide that therapeutic um, intervention.
0: Um, Your talk at iAdams identified self-compassion as an antidote to eating disorder, well, disordered eating mindsets and habits. Um, Is that accurate?
1: Uh, Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) I I was recalling that. Um, So could you just talk briefly about that? I mean, we talked about it in terms of teachers and practitioners as you hear this conversation, being self-compassionate towards yourself. But Can you talk about what the link is there with the self-compassion and the eating disorders?
1: Yeah, there's some really great research on the benefits of self-compassion and if listeners are interested in reading more um, I'd encourage them to look at some of the work by Kristen Neff um, N-E-F-F. So she defines self-compassion as having three different components. So the first one is self-kindness over judgment. So we are able to be caring and gentle and kind to ourselves rather than harshly critical or judgmental and that's going to influence our language so the language of self-talk is going to be much more um, soft and supportive Um, There's also a sense of common humanity and this helps counter the feelings of isolation. So accepting that nobody is perfect, and this is part of the shared human experience, um, and also mindfulness over, over identification. So we're not ignoring um, our experience, but we're not um, over-focusing on it either. Um, probably a more simplified way to think about self-compassion is that we're able to be empathetic to our own suffering and treat ourselves as we would treat a loved one. Um, and you know, one of the things I find really helpful to do in my work with dancers is, you know, when they're struggling with that very self-critical voice is to ask them, well, what would you say to a friend if they said that to you? Because we're often able to conjure up that compassion for someone else in a way that sometimes we can't for ourselves. And, you know, the really exciting thing about the research on self-compassion is that multiple studies have found self-compassion associated with um, less disordered eating, better outcomes in eating disorder treatment, improved body image, uh, better eating habits, less anxiety and depression, and less perfectionism. And, you know, I think the really interesting thing about this is we often think, I think a lot of times as dancers especially, (laughs) is that if I'm really hard on myself and, you know, I make myself feel bad enough, that will make me change. Um, But I think it's actually the opposite. The kinder we are to ourselves, the more compassion we can show to ourselves, actually that
0: is linked to improved um, behaviors and health. That is fascinating. Is it Susan Neff? You said N E F F. It's Kristen. Kristen Neff.
1: Yeah, K R I S T I N, I believe. N E F F. Yeah. There's. She has a lot of studies. I think she's um, in Texas, like University of Austin, maybe or UT Austin. One of those.
0: (laughs) Um, Big state. Lots of yeah. um, So just to wrap up, I want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to say about this topic. And then I also want to ask you if you have any other resources, um, including your own, that you'd be willing to share.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, I think just to kind of wrap up the, the conversation on language, um, you know, Dance is an art form where I think practices are often passed down from generation to generation to generation over hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, And when it comes to language, you know, a lot of times the old way of doing things is not the best way or the right way of doing things. And so it can be challenging to question practices that you've maybe been trained in yourself and Perhaps doing for a really long time. Um, But I think this is important work and it's really worth it because it can make a a profound difference in um, decreasing the risk of eating disorders and disordered eating, um, undernourishment, and poor body image in dancers. Um, What was the other thing you wanted me to say?
0: Do you have any other resources?
1: So if, if um, someone would like help themselves with an eating disorder, I would want them to know that they're not alone. Help is available, full recovery is possible. Um, and not to de- delay getting help because um, you might feel like it's not that bad and it's okay to wait, um, remembering that the sooner the intervention, the better the chances of full recovery. Um, You know, a team approach is usually what's recommended um, for the treatment of eating disorders or disordered eating. So that's going to involve a registered dietitian, a therapist, um, a primary care doctor or internist at minimum, sometimes also a psychiatrist and some other providers. Um, And really, you could start with any one of those providers and then they can help you set up the rest of your treatment team. So if you're looking for providers in your area that have um, experience with eating disorders, I'll give you a few websites that are um, good resources for finding local providers. So one is NIDA, which I mentioned earlier with the Coaches um, Toolkit, Um, they have a find an expert or find a local provider um, link on their site. Um, Another one is IADEP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. You can also find an expert by location there. Um, The Academy for Eating Disorders or IFED, which is the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. So that's specific just to dietitians who specialize in eating disorders, but all of those resources Have links to help you find providers in your area. Um, And of course, you want to ask about, you know, experience with working with dancers. And I think having the right fit in a treatment team is super important. So trying to get a sense of, you know, the person's philosophy and approach and making sure that it feels like it would work for you. Um, People can contact me. Um, I do provide virtual sessions, and I also often help people find um, providers wherever they may be if virtual is not appropriate, which it often isn't in um, eating disorder treatment. Um, I have a network of colleagues in various um, organizations, so it's not too much work for me to to generally shoot an email out and see if there's someone, you know, in whatever area the dancer might be in And
0: where do people find you?
1: Oh, okay, great. So um, you can reach me uh, via my website, which is msnutrition.com. So that's my initials, msnutrition.com. Um, you can um, email me at info at or you can just use the contact me link on my website. Um, and you can also find me on social media. So on Instagram, I am at nourishhead point uh, P-O-I-N-T-E. Um, and I'm also on Facebook and honestly cannot remember what my Facebook
0: handle is. We'll put all of it in the show notes okay, and perfect. also on our website, um, so that people can definitely get in touch with you. Annika. this has been really informative and very helpful. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really been a pleasure. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo, Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzi, and dancer designer, Katie Dean, crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search DanceWell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye!